right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. I apologize. I do have a bit of a cold. I am so jacked up for today's podcast. John Wood is our guest, longtime caddy on the tour, now a broadcaster with NBC. He tells all the stories. Man, he names a couple names in, in a couple of these stories, which usually caddies don't do. But as he mentions here, you want the former caddies to come on the podcast and tell the stories. Uh, they can loosen up a little bit. But man, incredible perspective on the game. I, I love this one. I, I can't wait to have John back on. I have a feeling he's going to be a somewhat regular guest on this podcast in the future. Uh, of course, No Laying Up is brought to you by our friends at Precision Pro Golf. Listen, the weather hopefully starting to turn a little bit warmer New golf season is arriving. There's all kinds of new possibilities to get, get a lower handicap, get out and play more golf, improve your driver, uh, or just you know have more fun on the golf course. But you, no matter what your goals are this year, Precision Pro Golf can probably help you get there. Their award-winning rangefinders give golfers reliable number to the target, whether you're aiming at the flag or trying to avoid a hazard, covering the lip of a bunker, whatever reason you might need it. Uh, everyone here at No Laying Up uses the NX9 slope from Precision Pro. It's got all the features golfers love advanced slope technology pulse vibration uh, it's got an embedded magnet built in so you can you know attach it right to the uh, right to the roofish attachment of the cart whatever you want to call that tournament legal which means for any any of you pros out there that are listening you can use it at the PGA championship this year precision pro also gives you more than just distance they got a one of a kind golf app gives you advanced insight into your game helps you measure performance let you know where you can prefer uh, where you can improve Search the App Store or the Android Marketplace for the Precision Pro Golf app. Our listeners receive $20 off the NX9 slope by using coupon code NOLAYINGUP. So go to precisionprogolf.com, use coupon code NOLAYINGUP at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder, the NX9 slope. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get to John Wood. All right, I'm going to pin you down. Uh, You have to pick one. You have to answer either or on this question. Are you a caddy or are you a broadcaster? Oof, at this point, I would say broadcast. Oh, that's different than what Bones would say, I think. Uh, well, I, I just, if I jumped in, you know, and, and, and was having more full-time bags again, obviously I'd, I'd switch. But at this point, um, I think I've made the transition. What's the transition been like? You know, it's been great. Um, the guys I'm working with are, are so helpful, you know, from Bones and Noda, Gary Koch, Zinger, and, and Justin Leonard, and, and Tommy Roy and Tom Randolph are they're so easy to work for, and, and it's like a, you know, it, it's a bigger team than I'm used to because usually it's just you and your player, but uh, man, I'm, I'm having a good time. Well, you and I don't really know each other, but uh, you know, I've, I've long read your stuff you've published for golf.com and kind of just always viewed you as an as a overall insightful person in golf, and I don't know if you are, I, I, when the news came out that you were going, joining NBC and Golf Channel, I, I threw out a challenge on the podcast. I was like, you know what? I want this guy to go and like be him. Don't do an impression of a broadcaster. Like go be yourself out there. Be the caddy. And I feel like you've taken a true caddy's approach to calling golf. You know, you're not necessarily doing all the play-by-play stuff. You are talking about, hey, as a caddy, this is what I'm telling my player here. I'm assuming that's a conscious thing. Uh, no question, Solly. I, I think that's why uh, you know Tommy Roy, you know, brought me in to begin with to have those discussions about what I would be thinking as a caddy or a player or what goes into these decisions because a lot of times um, on the air it's just you get a number and you think oh yeah it's that club but there's really so much that goes so much more that goes into those decisions um, and I'm just trying to, to bring those to light and a lot of times you know you get in such a routine as a player caddy team a lot of these things are glossed over um, and you don't have to talk about them anymore but they're all there and you know hopefully if I've got time you know during the broadcast I love to bring in everything that they're really thinking about. Is it hard to be on the spot, though, on a broadcast? Like, hey, you've got 10, 15 seconds here. Say something witty, insightful, and get out. Is That <laughs> that seems challenging to me. It's a great challenge. It is. And there are times when, you know, you, you're, you know they're coming to you. You're not 
quite sure how much time you're going to have. So you've kind of got an A answer and a B answer. If, you know, if you've got time or and you know you've got 30 seconds or 25 seconds, you can get your complete thought in and, and everything that goes with it. Um, other times it, it gets delayed, whether, you know, somebody's just hit a shot, they want to stay on for a little longer or, uh, you know, there's a comment they need to get in and, and they come to you and you've got all of a sudden you've got eight seconds. So that quick, okay, what, how do I chop this 25 seconds down to the eight most important seconds? What do I want to say quickly and get out? So that's a great challenge and I'm still dealing with it. Sometimes I can be a little verbose and, and trying to cut those answers down is, is a challenge for me right now. Hmm. That's that's you know we we are critiques of almost all aspects of a broadcast, but I still have no interest in doing it. It just <laughs> it takes me like two hours after a week of golf to like get all my thoughts out. Like to get it in and out in a quick window would not be a skill of mine. But can we back up for for listeners? Give a bit of background. How you got into caddying? You know, assuming let's just, I mean almost assume people haven't heard of you. Who have you worked for in the past? And uh, kind of how how we got to where we are today. I started with Kevin Sutherland back in 1998, who just won last week at the Tucson National, which was great to see. I knew Kevin and his teacher very well and uh, from Sacramento. And his second year on tour, he hadn't really settled on a caddy. And, and we were just out hitting balls one day. And he and his coach, Don Bauckham, asked if I'd be interested in coming out and trying it. And, and uh, gosh, I thought, well why not? I mean, I, but I honestly figured it'd be like a one or two year deal. Then I'd get back to the real world. But, uh, what I fell were you in love doing with at it. the time. I mean, I was, I was managing a bookstore in Sacramento, believe it or not. <laughs> so, uh, and you, you, know, you gloss past your, your college golf bona fides though. Well, because in real life, I glossed past it. <laughs> I stopped at Cal Berkeley for a cup of coffee and, and uh, played there for my freshman year, but didn't get beyond that. I kind of got burned out on a lot of things and, and, and left Berkeley after that. But I did play there for a year, um, which was, you know, I had a lot of good times on the golf course. Uh, off the golf course, I wasn't <laughs> wasn't su super successful. Um, so, I play, yeah, I played high school. I played college golf at uh, Cal Berkeley. And then, you know, I played for a long time after that, never thinking about turning professional or, or you know, heavily into the amateurs, just kind of buddy-buddy golf at that point. That's kind of how I got into caddying with Kevin. Kevin and I were together for seven years. Um, and then I had a, a brief, uh, you know, half a year with Chris Riley, Mark Kalkovecchia, and then I went to uh, Hunter Mahan. We had nine great years together, and uh, most recently uh, five with Cooch, and just a few tournaments this fall with Cameron Champ. Yeah, there's a lot, lot I want to uncover there. But the first, the most important question, you know, if if you technically played college golf. Are you a great player in your own right? And one, why do broadcasters always say that about Cat? Why does it why does it always follow up with in his own right? <laughs> I think it's by comparison to the guy they're carrying the bag for, because it's never even close. There was a time I could I could play a little bit. Honestly, Solly, these days I hardly ever play. I've I've played once in the last five years probably, just because when I get time off, you know, I'd rather not be on a golf course, to be perfectly honest with you. I'd rather do other things. So, you know, I, I still enjoy going out and hitting balls for an hour here or there or chipping and putting. But um, in terms of playing golf, I just I just don't play a lot anymore. So um, I definitely would not qualify for that great player in my own right, maybe in my own head and my own history, but uh, certainly not in my own right. Somebody pointed that out to us and sent us the question as to why they always say in his own right or in her own right. And I it sticks out to me and we make fun of it all the time now but how important is it to be a good player as a caddy and, and I know that there's a wide range of you know there's former tour pros that caddy on tour and there's 20 handicaps that caddy on tour all of which have been trusted to help make decisions for for their tour pro so how does that work because sometimes I wonder if you know being a good player do you see shots your own way instead of your player's way versus the you know the not good players only see shots the way their player hits it I'm wondering if you could kind of uh, speak to that no, that's a great question. I think it helps. I don't think it's crucial. It helps in that, um, you know, Kevin Sutherland and, you know, about halfway through our first year, um, he, he was so great and patient with me learning on the job uh, because you can think you know golf, you know, playing a lot of, you know, high college or, or amateur events, but until you get out here and really know what happens, it, it's overwhelming what really goes into it. But Kevin, about halfway through our first year, told me, hey, I'm not paying you to agree with me. I'm not paying you to look at this like a caddy. I'm paying you, I want you to look at these shots like you were playing them and tell me what you would do in this situation if I ask you. Um, and that was a great, ever since then, I've really kind of taken that to heart and that um, look at it like a player, Think, but, but think ahead and, and have more things in your head than a player. Because a lot of times 
I think a player is so wrapped up in um, swing thoughts or what am I working on? And a caddy, uh, we don't have to worry about that. We are much more big picture, um, looking at all the options, knowing what strengths our players have, what shots they like to hit, what they don't like to hit. And I always say it, it, a good caddy has the answers to 10 questions that never get asked because you try and stay ahead of the game. But getting back to your original question, um, which was, I'm, I've talked so long, I forget what it was. I think it was something <laughs> along the lines of just, you know, how, how important it is to be a good player or, okay. you know, how, how the guys that aren't good players, how they, you know, are able to be trusted to give advice in, under extreme circumstances, you know? Sure. Guys that aren't great players, I think they're very organized. They do their homework. They're, they're way ahead of the game and they know what their players are capable of. It's not important that, you know, if I'm catting for Bryson DeChambeau, I can't hit a nine iron 190 yards, but I don't need to. I know that he can. And as long as I know what his limitations are, what his preferences are, and I'm organized and I re and, and you're confident, I really think that it's not important that, you, that you're a great player. You just need to know that what your player is capable of, um, you know, through the bag. I, I want to talk a little bit about homework there. You mentioned that. And uh, I want to look at this through the lens of one, what we just saw last week at concession. I know you're working for TV now. I don't know if you've seen that golf course before, but let's assume, assuming you hadn't and you were catting in that event. When does the homework start for you? Are you out walking that golf course so that when you go with your player for the first practice round, you already have this information? Or are you kind of discovering it with the player in the practice round? Does that vary week to week? And kind of, you know, what 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 do you have to like check off on a list uh, when you're seeing a golf course for the first time as a caddy? Personally, I, I never would let a uh, go on a go on into a practice round with my player not having seen the course. I just felt like that was a waste of time. If you were both uh, looking at it for the first time and looking in the yardage book, trying to figure it out for the first time, um, I thought that was a waste of time and energy. So I always, and I think most guys on a new course, always want to see a course before their players do, just so the practice round, you're not guessing. You've got some ideas. They not, might not all be correct ideas and they might change throughout the practice round or even during the tournament, but you have an idea. Um, and the, the first thing I would do is for the new course, Courses, um, you know, for example, this one, we wouldn't have gone out there on Monday as a player, but I would have. I would have gone out Monday. Um, I would have looked at greens. I would have charted what I thought possible pin locations would be. I would have looked at the weather forecast. You know, what what is the wind going to do for the week? Um, is it going to change around? Is it going to be one certain wind all week? Because that's, you know, tee shots and holes completely change in their makeup and how you're going to play them with a different wind direction. I would do that and, and kind of note, okay, if, if we've got a north wind, we're going to hit this club off the tee. If it turns around to the south, it's most likely this one. And here's why. So you can, you know, have reasons to, to present to your player um, that you're not guessing, that he knows you've done the work and um, he's, he's going to be confident in, in your decision that you've done the work. A great example of that, I think, was Ricky Elliott and Brooks this week. Um, I think Brooks said that he hadn't even seen the, the back nine uh, going into Thursday, and Ricky had done his work, and, you know, they played it fine with no issues. Um, had Ricky not done that work, and or if Brooks didn't have confidence in him, it would have been a circus out there. Um, so I, I'll look at pin locations. I'll note, um, okay, if we've got this whole location, we cannot miss it here. And I won't present it to my player like you can't miss it here. Um, I'll say instead of you can't miss left, I'll say, hey, plenty of room to the right on this on this whole, whole location. Um, a lot of that is for when you get in trouble off tees, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, a lot of these guys are so good. If they're in the fairway, most of the time they'll be able to control their iron no matter what and, and hit it in the right spot. But when you get in trouble off tees, you've got to know, okay, we can't hit this green or we don't want to hit this green. We want to hit it right. Or you've got to leave this one um, short of, of like a great example of that was 13 on Saturday. I mean, that was a brutal hole location. And I think we saw the carnage all day long. And I think I said it on the air at one point. Um, I think Patrick Reed had gone long left or, or short right into the bunker and then hit that long left, a guy with a great short game. I would have had that discussion with my player before the round saying, hey, I know you can hit a five iron on this screen, but it's probably, you know, in my mind, it's it's one out of 20. 
let's not even try and hit this green. Let's hit seven iron short left of it. So we've got a great chance at four, taking the big numbers out of play. I always like to just have those discussions with a player, you know, on the driving range as they're warming up. Uh, just so you you plant that seed so they get there and they aren't surprised that you trying to tell them don't hit this green with a five iron <laughs> because you know they're so good and what got them here is that expertise and that confidence and they're going to look at you if you haven't you know gone to them pre-round um, and say what do you mean i can't hit five iron on this green i got my name on my bag you know so <laughs> that's kind of what i look at when i'm walking a course before before round or before the whole tournament hmm. at that level i guess when i go to a go to an event i'm always kind of not stunned but always just a little surprised at how often caddies and players are in their books and how much of the game at that level is decided between those pages or how much reliance is there. And it makes sense when you know where the ball is going, which real, I mean, obviously no one knows more than the PJ tour pros where the ball is going, how important it is. Like if I'm playing my own game, my variance is so high that like kind of just, I kind of just go up with what I'm feeling on the tee. Like, you know what? I'm kind of feeling the driver here, but with these guys, like it's so, you know how far it, it flies, you know what your miss range is, blah, blah, blah. That so much is decided, you know, but you know, with all the notes in there. And I'm always just curious as to what, what are people looking at in that yardage book? Right. I mean, it, for golf course, I'm sure it varies for golf courses you've been going to for 10, 20 years and stuff. But when you're that good, how, I'm just, I guess, a little surprised at how how frequently guys will open up those books, even after a shot, trying to like understand, you know, what what are they looking at? I guess uh, when they when they're opening up their books. Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny when I started out here, uh, the books were so basic. What they've gone to now is, is incredible. Mark Long, who used to caddy for Fred Funk, does does most of the books for almost every tournament these days. They're so detailed that I honestly wouldn't be afraid at this point to, to go onto a course without having seen it with Mark's yardage books. I almost think they're too good. You don't have to do the homework that maybe you had to do in, in years past to figure everything out. But what we're looking at a lot of times when these decisions get made are, okay, um, I know how far it is to the pin. Um, that's, that's easy. But that a lot of the times is completely irrelevant. I want the players and my caddies want to know um, how far is it up onto the swale right in front of the pin. How, far, how much room do I have behind it? You know, what exactly is left of this green and can I get it up and down if I hit it there? Let's say, for example, I've got, you know, a, a player who hits an eight iron 165 and we've got a, a pin that's, you know, 162 to the pin, maybe 158 up top of, of a swale. So an eight iron, you know, a normal eight iron is going to fly a little long. But um, if I know we've got eight yards behind this pin, which I've noted in my book, or I can tell him, hey, you've got all the room in the world behind this pin. You can hit this all day and it's never gonna go over the green. It gives him that little bit of extra confidence. And I think most of the, I think most of the bad shots on the PGA Tour are because of indecision and not fully committed to the shot. Where if you can give him that last bit of information that he goes, oh, well, I don't have to take much off this eight iron, you know, which, you know, when you're trying to do something special with the shot, take take a little bit off or, or cut it or draw it or something you're not used to, that's when that little seed of doubt can be introduced. But if you tell him there is no way you can hit this eight iron over the green, and even though it's probably going to land, you know, 12 to 15 feet past the hole, that's fine. So it gives them that extra bit of clarity in terms of, of stepping into the shot. And, and um, you know, if they know they have the right club, if they know they that it can't go anywhere really bad, if they execute, um, you know, they're so good that they, they go into a shot with no fear whatsoever. Yeah, I played a pro-am with Adam Hadwin a few years ago, uh, and his caddy Joe was, I, I just, yeah. I was really just taking notes at the numbers he gave him, right? Like, st just a standard middle of a fairway shot. I just remember him saying, 112, 130. And I was just like man, that's a pretty big range. Like, what do you, what do you mean? It's either right. it's somewhere between 112 and 130. <laughs> and he's like, no, that's front number and pin. Like, those are the numbers he needs. And like, yeah. I, I was just like, whoa, that is a great, I, should, I don't know how it's taken me this long to learn this, but it's probably a great way to look at approach. I have 18 yards in which to land this. Like, yeah. how much better do I feel standing over that shot rather than this needs to go 130, not 131, not 129. It's kind of that that kind of way of of charting around golf courses again when you have a variance that is very trackable and very understandable 
uh, I, I just kind of learning about that process of, of what goes on there is, has been uh, really fascinating to me. So No question. There's, there's a great old story of a caddy named Lynn Strickler who worked for Crenshaw for a long time. And he was, I can't remember the player, but he had a week off from Crenshaw and he was working for somebody else. And uh, they get on the first hole and, and Lynn gives him, you know, 155. And they get on the next hole and he gives him 170. And he gets on the next hole, he gives him 140. And, and the, the player said, hey, Lynn, I'm, I'm noticing all your numbers are ending in, in zero or five. Is that just coincidence? And Lynn goes, no, I just don't think you guys are that good. <laughs> <laughs> Might be accurate. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Whoop. You've heard us talk a lot about Whoop. You're going to be seeing it in uh, upcoming content series. Whoop.com, W-H-O-O-P.com. You can use promo code NOLANGUP for 15% off your purchase. It's a fitness wearable that gives you detailed insights into a lot of things that you know you do every day and a lot of things that are very important to both your mental and physical health, but you're probably not measuring unless you are using your Whoop. How much you're sleeping, how that affects your recovery, how good your sleep actually is. You might think you're getting great sleep, but Spoiler, if you're you know having a bunch of sugar right before bed, your resting heart rate is going to skyrocket throughout the night. You're not going to get very good rest. Your recovery is not going to be very good. You're, you might be irritable the next day. Uh, again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there might be some irritable persons in some upcoming content that might be related to a bad whoop score. That's all I'm going to say about that. It gives you all kinds of detailed info on you know how much you should be straining your body. If you're rested, you know you can push yourself this much on this day. If you're not rested, hey, don't overdo it. Let's focus on getting uh, recalibrated and re-rested. So go to whoop.com. We've got all kinds of podcasts and information about how this tool can improve your life. It's improved all of ours. I love my whoop. Uh, whoop.com. Use promo code NOLANGUP at checkout for 15% off. Let's get back to John Wood. For listeners that might not have ever heard us discuss this or, you know, or cover it with other caddies or players we've had on, I'm wondering, can you lay out what what a typical pay structure is for a tour caddy? I think a lot of people just assume it's 10% of earnings, but, you know, that's really only, only part of it. Who's responsible for airfare, accommodations? Do you stay with the player when you travel? Kind of help us set that scene. It varies, but I would say on average you know, almost you get a salary and that you're going to receive no matter what, whether you make the cut, whether you win anything in between, you get paid a salary. And as a caddy, you can pretty much take care of your expenses out of that salary, um, hotel, rental car, airfare. Um, and you take care of that on your own from, from your salary, obviously. And then on top of that, um, typically you'll receive percentage of what the player earns. Um, I would say on average, it's 5% of most, uh, most earnings, seven to eight percent of a top ten, and ten percent of a win. Obviously, that that varies between you know players out there. Some it's more, some it's less. But that's that's a pretty basic pay structure. So the fact that you get that salary, you can't. You're not really going to lose money if you're smart about it. The one exception I would say is when you go overseas. Um, a lot of times, uh, guys will have that agreement with their player that that you that they will take care of the airfare to go to an open championship or to go to Asia. Uh, because those tickets are typically a lot more and, and you can, you know, off your normal salary, you can lose money in a heartbeat, um, especially if your guy misses the cut. So that's kind of a basic um, pay structure that's the average out there. And it seems like caddies, you know, will tend to go in on houses together during weeks or look for, you know, host stay or things like that. It, it seems, uh, you know, I, I guess I always picked before I got into golf, I pictured that the, the caddies, you know, air, airfare and everything would be paid for. But I guess it kind of somewhat is through the salary you're talking about. But it's not uncommon for caddies to bunk up together and stuff on the road during tournament weeks. Right. Absolutely. Especially uh, during majors. I'm telling you what, if, if there was some way that you could have Golf Channel could have just put a microphone in some of the rooms we had watching the golf at majors for, for about 10 years in a row, um, me Bones, Joe LaCava, and Fluff stayed together at the Masters in the same house. And I'm not kidding you, the, the, the commentary watching the golf after you got home in the afternoon was, it was like, uh, you know, you couldn't pay for that much comedy. It was so funny. Yeah, gosh. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> Everyone always tells us, you know, you got to have more caddies on, got to have caddies on, got to have caddies on. I'm like, you don't get it. It's the former caddies you want to have on because the current caddies – are that, that, that uh, to talk speak about that right you're trying to you're basically doing all you can to not have yourself be the show or draw any special attention to you is that is that fair to say sure you want to you know you want to be great at your job um but really you only care if your player thinks you're great at your job um your peers know i mean the peers know who the really good caddies are and, and guys who you might not think are the best caddies but um 
you really you know it's it's the name on the bag and um, the the best sports analogy I could come up with is you're you're kind of a jockey. Um, you can be the greatest jockey in the world, but if you're on a donkey, you're going to finish last every week, um, and and the vice versa. If you're not a great caddy, but you've got a guy who's a stud, um, you're still going to be up there pretty good. So um, it, 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 I feel like a, a caddy is very similar to a jockey in that respect. What's it like to? And- I would say a fairly large, there's a fairly large uncertainty as to how a financial year is going to go for a caddy. And in this, you can speak on this in terms of, you know, just caddies in general and your own personal experience. I'm not sure which way you'd want to go with this, but injuries happen to players, wins happen. I always wondered how hard it is to plan financially in a job like that, right? You could have, it could be a great year. Or it could be, you know, an injury riddled year for your player. And I just wonder how, how, if you have any kind of perspective on that. And there's a lot of, a lot of people don't really fully have grasped like the, the different aspects of pro caddy life, right? I mean, there's LPGA, there's Corn Ferry Tour, there's European Tour. Obviously, there's just many different aspects of caddy life. But the uncertainty of that job always kind of, you know, mystifies me a little bit. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that with your experience. No question about it. You've, um, I've, I've been extremely lucky to work for, for good guys and successful guys. The guys who aren't on bags, you guys who are finishing top 10 every week or even top 20 and missing a lot of cuts, um, you know, it's a struggle. There's no question about it. It can be a struggle, especially on, on the lower tours. And I think on those tours, you really have to love your job. And, and you know, in your mind, you're always working towards moving up a level, moving up a level, moving up a level and um, and getting to that that top tier of the PGA Tour. Um, but it, it's it, it is so difficult um, for, for a guy, you look at the purses and you know, you're getting a, a portion of that purse, but the purses are pretty small compared to what the PGA tour offers. So you just got to be a lot smarter and you kind of bide your time and, and say, okay, I'm going to budget this much money. This is my salary. And I don't want to spend any more than this every week, no matter what. I mean, um, you know, if you become very successful and you've got a guy who's consistent week in, week out, obviously you can start, you know, living a little nicer on, on tour and having, you know, your own hotel room every week. But a lot of times I think early on or on, on different tours, you've got to say, um, especially if you've got a family at home, that I, I'm going to, um, if my salary is 2000 a week, I've got airfare, I've got a rental car, I've got a hotel room, and I've got food. How can I spend as little as possible of that to, to in case we do miss the cut? I don't want to ever want to be put in the position where even if you miss a series of cuts in a row where you're losing money. So um, you got to be very, very smart. And, and there are times when you got to be extremely thrifty about it and say, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to eat at the course. I'm going to eat breakfast at the course. I'm going to eat lunch at the course. And, you know, I'm going to share a hotel room for the week. So, uh, different levels, different players. Um, it, it varies a lot. Yeah. No, I think about that too. I mean, I, I you know, obviously when, when, when guys miss cuts, you know, you think of the player like, Oh, that sucks. He, he doesn't make any money this week. He's going home, blah, blah, blah. But I, I look at it like, God, that sucks for the caddy. Like, is it really disheartening to miss a cut as a caddy? Right. I mean, when, you know, when you have that uncertainty, you know, from week to week, what, what, I guess, what is it like emotionally when you, when your player misses a cut? Uh, I, it's the worst missing a cut, especially close, uh, when you're close, it, you know, if you're in the middle of the round on, on Friday and you're, you're seven out, you're fine. It's like, okay, well, we're going to miss cuts. It's going to happen. But when you, you know, when it's close on Friday and you end up missing by one, it kills you because you just don't know what could have happened on the weekend. Not only for that week, um, you know, you can go out and, and shoot 65, 65 on the weekend and, and end up finishing 10th. And it's a completely different ball game. Uh, and not only that, but, you know, two more days, if your guy's struggling two more days in, in competition, he might find it, you know, and it might be very late on Sunday. And not that your position changes that much, but he might find something on the 15th hole on Sunday that puts you on a run for the next five weeks. So, yeah, missing a cut, especially at, at big events, uh, the players, uh, the majors, it crushes you the masters is the worst because <laughs> you know it's you know it's 50 in ties and it's a small field and you shouldn't be able to make it um, if you play just decent but uh, that was really one of the only tournaments where i was nervous on the first hole on thursday because you wanted to get off to a good start being at augusta national for the masters on the weekend no matter where you are in the field it's so special luckily i haven't missed many cuts there but 
that was the one all year long where if I could circle one and say, that's the one I, I definitely want to make, that would be it. And going back to kind of the, the pay structure of things and how, you know, a lot of people assume things are 10%, but you mentioned it being 10% typically for a win. I think inherently built into that is kind of like a, a you know, that's the, that's the upside for being a caddy is, you know, you stick with a guy for a long time, you can get that big reward at the end. And it is not always necessarily, you know, I'm transitioning then into, you know, your your recent years caddying for Matt Kuchar, at least, you know, a lot of our audience knows you for that. Yet, if you Google Matt Kuchar caddy, a very different story comes up. And you were Matt's full-time caddy when all that went down in Mexico. What was it like to be Kuchar's caddy at that time? Did you have any conversations with him about how that all went down, how it was handled? And I'm just wondering if you could kind of provide perspective on, you know, where what his mindset was, you know, having a guest caddy on the bag that week in Mexico versus having a full-time caddy. Sure. We, you know, we talked about it after the fact and, and, and Cooch regrets how that he handled that so much. And I, I feel, I, I feel bad for him because he did not want it to, to happen like that. And it was unfortunate that it did. What happened was he was never planning on playing that event. Um, and I had a bunch of actual uh, little league buddies who had called me earlier in the year and said, hey, we want to have a little reunion in Sacramento. What week are you definitely going to be home? And that's the week I gave them because it was never on the schedule. And then we were actually in Vegas the week before and Cooch said, hey, I think I'm close here. I want to I want to play next week. And, you know, I explained the situation to him and he was fine with it and, and said, look, you don't need to come. You had this plan forever. You know, don't worry about it. So he ends up and going and winning and winning the tournament, and and that was awesome. Obviously, he he didn't handle it initially how he should. You know, this is just my opinion, nobody else's. You know, did he deserve the full ten percent? I I don't know that because I don't think he did a lot of the 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 work um, in terms of helping Cooch on the course. It was more of carrying the bag for the week. At the same time, when Cooch did end up winning, I think, you know, it took him took him a while, but I think Cooch eventually got to the point where he goes, yeah, you know, I really screwed this up and I want to fix it. Um, and he did. And, and um, you know, I don't, I don't think it was, uh, you know, knowing Cooch like I do and knowing his family, it, I don't, really don't think it was for PR purposes or, you know, to save his reputation at all, to go in and fix it. I think he wanted to fix it because he realized he'd made a mistake. Um, you know, and a lot of people don't know this, but later that year at, when we played the WGC event in Mexico City, um, he flew El Toucan in and, you know, he said, look, I, I want to, it was at that point he had already fixed it monetarily, but he wanted to sit down and have a conversation with them and say, I, I regret how this all came out. And, um, you know, I apologize and I didn't want it to happen this way. And, and um, you know, he stayed all week and followed us around and he was great. So um, I think it just, it got into a situation that, that could have been avoidable. Um, and I think looking back, it's, it's one of Cooch's biggest regrets. And I don't know People are still on him about it, but I don't know what else he could do at this point. Um, it was an honest and sincere apology. Um, he fixed it monetarily, and he's done some a lot of stuff behind the scenes that nobody knows about to make that whole situation better. So it was unfortunate to, to see Matt go through that because I think his heart is generally in the right place. And, um, you know, I think it affected him on the golf course a little bit for a while. At this point, I don't know what else he could have done after the fact when he admitted the mistake. It'd be an all-time caddy blame if he could somehow twist this on you and blame you for not being there uh, for all this all this happening. No, I think that, that perspective is important. I think it, you know, some people out there were quite confused and just assumed it should be 10%. But I, I'm with you in terms of exactly what you're talking about. The, the, the level of detail that you're talking about for the work you put in for a, a tournament week and the week-to-week travel that you make, that goes into that 10%. Like, that's that's where you've earned that more so than, you know, just kind of probably pretty basic caddy advice and, and, and whatnot carrying the bag doesn't necessarily translate to 10%. But there is a middle ground that I think he, what you just mentioned, he needed to end up at. And we eventually did end up at um, that, you know, I, I, it's probably, it's just hard for, for grasp to grasp for a lot of golf fans. And I do agree that the moniker has really stuck with him for probably longer than it, than it needs to. But um, yeah, I just was curious to get your, your perspective on that. And I, I also want to know, understanding the dynamics of player caddy relationships on tour, how, you know, relationships end and begin and end and begin a lot on tour. And I I kind of pictured it before getting into golf that, 
it'd be a lot like seeing an ex-girlfriend out on tour for somebody you used to work with that you no longer work with, but I really don't get that vibe anymore. When a player and caddy split, how often is it that the player ends up firing the caddy? How often is it the caddy moves on from the player? I'm wondering if you can kind of just talk about the dynamic of, you know, the the ever-changing, you know, ever-evolving shuffle of, of different caddies on different players' bags. Sure. I'd, I'd say the, the majority of time it's the it's the player um, initiating the change um, and letting someone go. And, and it might not even be because of anything that the caddy's done. It might just be, I need to look at somebody else. I need to find a new routine because this isn't working right now. Um, so I'd say most of the time it goes that way, the player firing the caddy. Um, but it goes both ways. Uh, there's a lot of times that, that caddies just feel like, you know, I've, I've had enough of this relationship. I'm not enjoying it. I don't feel like I'm helping, and I think it'd be better for both of us to, to move on. And, you know, it, you said it right. It is kind of uh, seeing like an ex-girlfriend. That, that, first, that first time you see him at a course, you know, or get paired with him is always, you hope that first 10 minutes isn't that awkward. Um, once you get past that, it's fine. Every player that I've worked for, I still have great relationships with, uh, from Mark Calcavecchia, Kevin Sutherland, Hunter, um, and Cooch. And I have great relationships with all of them, thankfully. It can go the other way and where it does get ugly. You know, you just, at that point, you hope not to get paired with them. You hope not to be in the same rotation of them uh, because it, it just becomes awkward and you don't want to have to deal with it. Yet almost everyone out there is on a different bag than the one they started on. You know, it's 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 every 100%. almost every player and every caddy has gone gone through it in in some way. And I just uh, I I have found more often than not the you know especially the caddies too just the professional the understanding of the nature of it right just you know they don't usually don't take it too personally. It doesn't seem to be you know it's it's like you said it can be just a I think as a player too and I'm obviously not a tour player but I think as a player you can. You kind of know with a caddy, it's like, dude, this cat, this guy, it's not his fault, but it's not working for me, right? It's it, and I think that there's probably a ton of that, especially at that level, where like, hey, I kind of need my vibe to be perfect right now, and it's not right now, so I need kind of something different. Is that kind of what you think leads to a decent amount of breakups? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, you can be a guy who, um, you know, a caddy who absolutely knows every yardage on the course, who knows every break, um, who's very businesslike and professional. But, you know, there's a time when, when maybe uh, maybe the player needs somebody who's going to make him laugh, you know, who's a, a little goofier out there and may not have all the answers, but uh, is going to, you know, relax him a little bit. Um, so the, a lot of times it's got nothing to do with the job he's doing. It's just I need um, – Calc, Calc was – be the first one to tell you that. Calc was, for a long time, used the rotation of guys, never had a full-time caddy for probably five years. Um, he would bring in Bones for a week when Phil wasn't playing. He'd bring in Joe LaCava when Fred wasn't playing. He'd bring in me if Kevin wasn't playing. Um, so he knew who he was personally, and he wanted to look at somebody else every week. And it's not like he didn't depend on it. He'd get guys he trusted. He didn't want that same routine week in, week out, where we're, it was the same conversations, it was the same things. And, and he knew himself, so I think it was a great way to do it for him. And so when it comes to you, you transitioning into, into TV, uh, what was kind of your reasoning for, if I understand it right, you were, you were the one that left Matt's bag versus the other way around. Um, but you've also floated that you're, you're open to continuing as a tour caddy if another opportunity comes along. I believe that quote is from, from golf.com. What was kind of your, your thought process on this transition, right? And, and you know, after caddying for so many successful players, what's, what's your barrier to entry in terms of potentially picking up another bag in the future? Uh, well, I think it was just, I felt like it was time to do something else. I was still in, enjoying most of the caddying, but some of the day-to-day -day stuff, I, I felt myself not, not enjoying it as much as I used to, you know, the homework and the, you know, being there early Tuesday mornings and, and, uh, the pro-ams and it's repetitive. Yeah. Once I got inside the ropes on Thursday, I, I loved it as much as ever. And, and I still miss it and I probably will miss it for a long time. Um, but this opportunity was there and I thought, um, you know, will it, if I keep caddying for another five years, will this opportunity still be there? And, and so I decided it was, I really enjoyed the commentating opportunity that Tommy Roy gave me at, uh, the McGladry a few years back. And, um, I always kept it in the back of my mind. If, if that came as a full-time opportunity, I, I wanted to really think about it and was interested in it. And when it did present itself, I just felt like it was the time to do it. And, um, you know, I feel like, um, 
I just felt like it was it was time for me to for a new challenge. And um, and, uh, you know, I don't have any plans whatsoever to go back to full time caddying um, at this point. If if something were to happen three, four or five years down the road where I, I felt like there was another opportunity, maybe. But I'm, I'm fully committed to this right now. And, and um, there's there's not much that could get me out of this job right now. I'm really enjoying it. Good. What, what has happened more often in your career? Has it been you leaving a player's bag or a player uh, is firing the right word? Is that too harsh of a word? It's a breakup. <laughs> um, it's not you. It's it's me. Yeah. It, it really does seem like it's a it's not you. It's me situation more often than not, though. Yeah, yeah. For the most part in my career, it's it's been me who decided to move on for a variety of reasons, and I I take it really hard when I don't feel like I'm helping a player. All the your bag of tricks isn't working. You know, uh, this used to work when I talked to him about this, or this pep talk he used to really take to heart and and start playing better golf. Or, and when those stop working, um, you you almost feel like uh, I am not helping this guy at all. And when you get to that point, you're not enjoying it. Um, you know, it's he's not, not enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. So you you know, it's it's you just get the feeling like I think we both need to do something else right now. And, you know, I've never shut the door if I've left somebody on, on working with them again, you know, and, and, you know, picking up that relationship. But, yeah, I, I think you, you need to look at it. It's a business. At the end of the day, it is a business. And caddies are just as much businessmen as players are. And when you're not happy, if you're not successful, um, you know, you, you can't be afraid to move on. Well, I, I hate putting people on the spot, so I actually sent some of these over to you last <laughs> night. Everyone's always like, what's your best story you've ever heard? And I hate, I hate that. I can never think of it. But I gave you a, a kind of a hint last night that I was going to ask you some of these questions. But we love to tease the Pampered Tour pros about, you know, <laughs> a lot of, you know, things they say or, or things like that. I want to know something you've heard, like the wildest complaint you've ever heard from a tour player. It could be somebody you were on the bag for. It could be, you know, somebody you're in the same group of. You don't have to name names. Something that just blew your mind or stuck out is a crazy thing that you didn't know somebody could complain about. It was a great question, and I've got two of them. And yes. I, th I think they'd both be okay with me mentioning their names, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. One year, uh, I think it was 05, uh, Open Championship at St. Andrews, and I was caddying for Calc, and, and um, you know, they have, a, they have a way of trying to put really fast players out early, just to kind of set the tone for the round. It's a great way to do it. So Calc, and I believe Simon Dyson and um, Rory Sabatini were first off, and first off at an Open Championship is, you know, geez, 640 or something. It's, it's an early time. Um, so we get out there, and we got around to, um, I'm trying to think of the double green is... 13 and 15, I believe. yeah, 13 and five is a double green. And um, we got around to 13 and um, I, don't, I don't know if you know, but a, an early tee time at an open championship is the greatest gift you could be given because you're gonna be done by 11 o'clock in the morning. And if there's gonna be wind, you've probably missed all of it. So we got around to 13 and um, we had to wave up a group on five because it was a double green and the, the flags were, the pins were fairly close to each other. And Sabatini did not like the fact that we had to wave this group up. And he started complaining a little bit and I was laughing initially. And how can we have to change the rules of golf and wave people up on a hole we're not even playing and this and that. It was funny. And, and Roy and I have a great relationship now, but I, you know, he, it went on and on and on. And, and I finally said, hey, Rory, you know, there are probably a hundred million people who would cut off their right hand to play an open championship at St. Andrews. And if you don't like it, maybe you go play quad cities next year. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was kind of taken aback initially, but then he laughed and said, yeah, you're right. You're right. I shouldn't, shouldn't put myself in that place. So he was great about it. The other one was kind of similar and um, we laugh about it every time we see each other. And this was Bryson DeChambeau at the, uh, the U S open at Shinnecock. And the first day, it was it was uh, it was just brutal. It was hard and fast, you know. And usually, U.S. Open they kind of ease their way into it. They kind of make it playable on the first day and get it harder and harder as you go along. Well, it was it was blowing sideways and hard, and and it, the greens were so tricky. Every shot was, you know, hanging on by the skin of your teeth. And 
and Bryson wasn't playing very well. He wasn't happy, and and uh, you know he got on a little bit of a complain train for a few holes. And and I usually could care less if another player in my group is doing that, but he it was going so bad that he was starting to affect his playing partners. And I we were walking to the 14th tee, and I looked at Cooch and said, Cooch, I got to say something because this is affecting everybody in the group. And he said, Yeah, you do what you need to do. And and uh, we got on the tee, and he was you know, talking about the conditions and, and I turned around and said, Hey, Bryson, this is normal, hard U S open conditions, you know, and I don't compare, I don't care that you're complaining, but you're affecting your playing partners at this point and, and you need to stop. And, you know, initially he was a little taken aback, but you know, when we finished the round and to this day, um, you know, he'll come up to me and say, you were right. Um, I was, I didn't know I was affecting my playing partners and, and, and you were right to say something and, um, you know, look at him, he goes and wins the U S open a couple of years later. So I, I, I tell him all the time, I take credit, I, you know, yeah, I, should get a little, I should get a little percentage for that U S <laughs> open win of his. <laughs> you got some balls on you. I, well, I, it's happened twice in 24 years, honestly, <laughs> and, and never, ever said anything else to a player, but, um, you know, uh, I, they both took it so well, and and it was just at a, a moment in the round where I'm like, look, he's affecting other uh, it, my player, and that's when I, I it it gets on me. I think everyone playing golf has a moment. You know, you if you really said out loud what you're kind of bothered by, it would sound so <laughs> ridiculous. You know, yeah. I can't believe they're working on that house like yeah. a thousand yards away. They're so loud <laughs> over there. It's like, hey man, life is kind of going on around you while you're trying to get a little ball yeah. in the hole. But yeah, what, exactly. What's the best? And this may you may have already given the answer. What's the best or ballsiest move you've you've ever made as a caddy? Could be talking somebody off a shot, insisting on something. I want to know. What, what, when your most, uh, maybe most prideful moment as a caddy was? Probably Hunter's first win in Hartford. He, he had he played great all week and, you know, was in control most of Sunday, um, but made a couple mistakes late. And all of a sudden we're standing on 18T and we're one back of Jay Williamson in a tournament that it, it never felt like we weren't going to win. Um, hit a good drive out there. And it was just, it, the wind was sideways hurting, sideways helping, sideways hurting. And it was just a tough one to figure out. We were right in between eight and nine iron. And, and you kind of knew at that point that he, he needed to make birdie to get into a playoff. So um, we went back and forth and back and forth. And I was, you know, at initially not doing a good job because I wasn't being decisive either. You know, we had eight iron out and the wind all of a sudden didn't feel like it was hurting. And it kind of became really clear to me that I needed to, clear the slate here or else he was not going to hit a bad shot. And I said, Hey, stop, come over here, put the, cut the club away. And we're going to start this all over. Went through all the numbers, decided what the wind was doing. Um, and you know, kind of said at that point, we decided on hitting a hard nine rather than a little eight. And, and I said, Hey, if the wind's not what you like, wait for the wind you like and rip it. And it kind of, cleaned the slate, got him cleared the shot he wanted to hit. And he, you know, he stuffed a nine iron, made birdie to get into the playoff and then birdied the hole again in uh, the first playoff hole uh, to win the tournament. So that was probably one of my biggest, you know, single moments. Probably my, my proudest caddy day, honestly, was probably working for Bill Haas at the President's Cup in Korea. He was put out last, which was shocking to me because, you know, he was uh, under a lot of pressure already. His dad's the captain. They do, you do those picks and we're watching Saturday night and it keeps going and keeps going. And I'm like, oh my God, they're going to put Bill out last year. And Bill was, you know, he was playing great, but he, he was nervous as, gosh, your dad's the captain and you're put out in the anchor position um, in a match that could decide it all, which it ultimately ended up deciding it all. So, you know, he got up early in his match and, um, you know, we were making the turn and I could... I could hear Bill talk about looking at the leaderboard going, come on guys, get this done. Come on. You know, <laughs> not, uh, not hoping that it did not come down to him. And, and I remember walking off the 10th tee and, and I got right in his face and I said, Hey, Bill, I want you to look at me. I want you to listen to me. It's going to come down to this match. I want you to know that right now, just because I don't want you to be surprised or nervous about it at the end. You're going to be nervous about it. I'm saying this to myself, but I don't want you to be surprised all of a sudden when we got three or four holes left and it's us. Okay, it's gonna be us, and I know it's it's a tough position to be in. You know, I had been there before, and and 
you know, with Hunter, you know, in 2010 at the Ryder Cup, unfortunately, when he lost to, to Graham McDowell. Um, but that experience of being there in the last group with everybody watching, knowing the whole thing came down to you, helped me a lot. And I felt like Bill, um, I could tell Bill, hey, look, I've been here before. Talk it all out with me. Don't hold anything inside. If you're scared to death about hitting the shot, you need to tell me so I know about it too. And he played so good coming down the stretch to, you know, to to close out his match on 18 with every single player, every caddy, and every fan on that 18th hole. Um, you know, he came through, and um, that was probably one of my proudest moments to see, you know, him and his dad hugging at the end of the of the match and knowing that his son got the winning point for him in his in his captaincy. Um, that was probably one of my proudest days as a caddy. Yeah, as I was getting ready for this last night, I'm, you know, I, I kept uncovering all these moments in golf that you've been a part of, right? And I hadn't even like processed the the Mayhan 2010 Ryder Cup moment, and and not to yeah, not to dwell on a, the opposite end of that, but what do you what, what can you possibly say to a player after all that? And if I may say before that happens, you know, everyone likes to point at the at the chunk chip, but. It needed to go in the hole, right? I mean, he needed to hole that. It wasn't like he needed to get it up and down for that to really, you know, affect the Ryder Cup. I think he he gets uh, an unfair amount of you know blame or attention on that, or wears it very heavy. But people pr- kind of forget the the situation. Maybe I've forgotten the situation, but that's how I remember it. Yeah, he didn't need to chip it in because at that point, I think Graham had about a six footer for par. So, um, you know, it looked like it, a par might win the hole anyways, and and we could carry on with the match, but. It, I felt horrible for Hunter because he'd played so well that whole week and didn't get as good a results as maybe he, he should have. Um, match play is match play. You can shoot 63 and lose. Sure. But uh, that, that last Sunday, we were we, again, we were last off, and he had striped it all day and not made a thing. And Graham, you know, made some huge clutch putts, um, especially on that back nine. We birdied. 16 to get within one uh we were one down after 16 and you know at that point if you're last off in one of those team events after you get past the first tee a lot of your day is spent in solitude because the rest of the groups uh all the fans are up front they're watching the first four five six groups out and only until you get late in your match do the fans start percolating back to you and um at that moment we got to 16 t and literally every other player every other assistant, every other caddy, and every fan on the course was with this group. And it was an amazing, huge amount of pressure, especially on the road, playing in Europe. And he had played, like I said, he played great that week. He got 16, made birdie on 16 to get within one. And then, I think that's how it worked. And then, um, you know, he had this chip shot. And, you know, Hunter would be the first to admit that, that chipping was never the strongest part of his game. And, you know, I never really feel like felt like that was a situational bad chip because he was, you know, just as likely to hit that chip on Tuesday as he was, you know, on Sunday at a Ryder Cup. My one regret there is that, you know, when I saw him pull Sandwich out of the bag, I almost, I, I felt like I was torn between saying, hey, hey, Hunter, we can putt this. Let's get it up there close to the hole, you know, roll it up there. But he was so decisive in taking Sandwich out of the bag, I didn't feel like I wanted to put that doubt in his head. So, uh, you know, I let him go ahead with the chip. Uh, if I could, you know, in hindsight, I, I wish I would have said, hey, we can putt this. Let's just, you know, run it up there and put some, make Graham make this six footer. But after the fact, you know, uh, I think Hunter and I both went into a shell for a few hours. Um, you saw, you remember Hunter's press conference there and we were both kind of torn up about it because week in, week out, you know, if you lose or you do something dumb, you're letting your player down or he's letting me down or, you know, that was, you know, the weight of the world because you were letting down, you know, all the other players. You felt like it. You felt like you were letting down the other players, the other caddies, the uh, the other captains, the assistants, and really your whole country. So he, you know, took that so hard and, and um you know, I kind of let him do his own thing. But then when we got to the back to the hotel, got to the team room and everybody's kind of hanging out and letting things go. I, I just, you know, I sat with him for a while and, and we just chatted about things. And, and um, you know, obviously it's if I could change the outcome, I would change it in a heartbeat. But I wouldn't trade that experience 
for anything. I mean, not many people get to spend, um, you know, the last hour of a Ryder Cup knowing that it's all on your shoulders. So just just to to have that experience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Hmm. Maybe this is just revisionist history in my mind, but I look at that moment and the aftermath of that and that press conference with, I don't know if pride's the right word, but just like appreciation for the game of golf and like what Hunter had to go through and that he cared enough to like, uh, that sounds kind of, you know, like it sounds kind of a lame way to say it. Of course, these guys care, but like just seeing that, how much it mattered to him. And I, I'd never remember feeling blamed towards him. I never remember feeling like this is your fault. This is, it all came down to you. What happened here, man? But I, he had to be feeling that. And I don't know. I look at that with just like, it rips my heart out a little bit to see, uh, you know, a player going through that so publicly when the pressure is just unmatchable. You can't, there's nothing you can do in your life to prepare you to hit those kind of shots under that kind of pressure. Like, it, there's just nothing. There's not one thing you can do in practice. You know, there's not anything you can do in your professional golf career to prepare you for that moment. And just the the spotlight on that on that moment and to see that happen is. Uh, I, I, we need to get him on the podcast to talk about it. It's been a long time since it happened. I, I'd love to hear his perspective on it. But sure, no, you're you're 100 right. There is this. It's so it feels so much bigger than golf at that point. You know. Um, so yeah, you're right. You just can't prepare for it no matter what. What's the worst mistake you've made as a caddy? It could be bad number, something you said you shouldn't have, bad advice, anything like that. Yeah, you sent me this one last night, and it's, this is the easiest answer I could ever give. 2014 U.S. Open at Pinehurst. Hunter was playing well, and uh, we got to our ninth hole, which was the 18th. And um, it's kind of a blind tee shot. You hit up a hill. You don't see your ball land. And we were playing with Jamie Donaldson. And for some reason, and I've never seen anybody before or since use this marking on a golf ball, but both of them put kind of a slash through the number on their ball. Both playing Titleist, and they both had put that slash through, and Hunter hit his drive first, and it looked like it was just dead down the middle and perfect drive. And then Jamie hit second, and it looked like kind of left edge of the fairway. And so, you know, everybody kind of left the tee, no worries. And and I got up top of the hill and, you know, saw the two balls, one on the left edge, one in the center, and went to the one in the center, which, you know, checked it real quick and it had the slash on the number. And I go, okay, we're good. Hit our shot up to the green, and then Jamie and his caddy did all their work, looked at the ball, hit their shot up to the green, and... We got up to the green, which was kind of blind as well. You couldn't see the surface from the fairway. And, um, you know, we're looking at the balls going, this shouldn't be here. This shouldn't be here. And, you know, through talking with a few fans and a few officials, discovered that they'd hit the wrong ball. Mm. And I took that because I was the first one there. I was the one that went straight to one ball and, you know, got the yardage, gave Hunter. I uh, personally, I felt like it was mostly my fault. Now, did everybody else have some sort of complicity in it? Certainly, because, you know, it's, you know, Hunter could have checked it. Jamie could have checked it. His caddy could have checked it. But um, I felt like I needed to take most of the heat there because I was the first one to it and gave no reason why anybody could have gone to the wrong ball. Um, that was the biggest mistake I made. And and the, the irony of it is their balls ended up about 15 feet apart on the putting green. <laughs> and had their balls ended up close together, you never I don't noticed. think anybody nobody would have ever known which is to this day you wouldn't have known but i feel like that was the biggest mistake i ever made as a caddy yeah you had an interesting take a couple of weeks ago on rangefinders when the pga cha- uh, pga of america announced for the pga championship they'll be allowed uh and the, maybe the highest compliment i can pay pay you is that you're one of the few guys in the in the golf world that you can get me to immediately change my opinion on something just because <laughs> i think this is definitely an area you would know more on than me but i always thought rangefinders would speed up play but in a series of three tweets you convinced me that it would not so i'm wondering if you could kind of share your thought process on you being against rangefinders at the pro level Sure. Um, first of all, I don't think anybody was clamoring for it. I just don't think anybody was talking about it, that it would speed up play or anything. And it was just a surprise announcement to have them come out and just say it. Um, it would help in very limited, very specific circumstances. If your ball is so far offline that um, there's there's no way you can get the right angle, you know, there's there's no marker close to where your ball is. And um, that's, that's a moment when it, it would help. But for the most part, the number to the pin is not the number that we want. It's not the number that the players want. They want the cover of a bunker. They want the front edge of a green. They want how far is it to the top of a swale? How far is it, you know, to the back edge? None of those numbers which you can get with a rangefinder. My feeling is that 
guys will still do all the exact same work they do. And then maybe at the end, double check with a range finder. And that, you know, that last check probably won't affect things too much, but there are times when, you know, range finders are not perfect. They're, they're fine for me and they're fine for, you know, any other amateur who's not a, a, a perfect ball striker, but with these guys, they're not perfect. I can stand there with the most, the best range finder in the world and shoot it one time and get 91 yards and shoot it again and get 87. Now to you and me, who cares? I mean, I'm not good enough to know the difference between 87 and 91. These guys are. And when you get in those situations, it's going to be like, well, which number's right? Now we got to go through them all again, double check at everything. And that's going to, it's going to create that that doubt in their head. For that reason alone, I don't think I don't think you need them, and I don't think it's going to speed up play. I really don't. I think if anything, it will it will slow it down a touch at the highest level. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I, I've always, I've you know come to the conclusion. I've tried to study slow play as much as I can. I've come to the conclusion that almost entirely all of golf's slow play issues happen on the putting green, especially in threesomes. It you know the hole is basically a toll booth, and three lanes come down to one because only one person can hole out at a time. And that just, it seems to be, you're always waiting for greens to clear. You know, you're not always waiting for guys. Very rarely are you, you know, as a group have space in front of them and you get to the tee and they're still in the fairway waiting to hit their shot, right? They're, they might be there because they waited on the group in front of them. But um, so it, I guess in my mind, it doesn't matter too, too much if, you, if you're slowing down other aspects of play that don't include putting. But uh, I'm wondering if, yeah, if if you think that there was a way to address slow play on tour, maybe that we're that we're potentially missing. That's a great way of putting it, honestly. That three lanes into one, I think that's a great analogy. Uh, Paul Goidos, who I used to play, you know, be around a lot because he and Kevin played a lot of practice rounds together. He says it perfectly and most succinctly and most correct. You know what causes slow play? Slow players. <laughs> it's not a you know, no matter what you do, there's going to be 15 guys in the field who play as slowly as they can. And there's no incentive for the other guys to try and play fast because they know they're just going to wait if they do. So it's unfortunate that instead of coming on tour and learning how to play faster, guys come on tour and learn how to play slower. One of the biggest things I think is, is green speeds. They're so fast, you know, for the most part these days that there's a lot more care into it. Um, if, you, if I'm watching old golf, um, you know, from, let's say, I don't know, 80s and back, you watch guys will hit their putts up to the hole and even if it's two or three feet, they'll just walk up and, and take a quick look and knock it in. Now, it is rare that guys don't mark, you know, one foot putts, which is that if you think about that, if every player in the field is marking a one footer or a two footer every single hole, that's that's another minute a player every hole. There's sometimes I'm going, just finish it. <laughs> you know, in my own mind, I'm like, what are you waiting for? Because, you know, that's an extra minute and it might sound like nothing, but add it up you know, 156 players for two days, and then it adds up to a lot. So I think that last, I've got to stick to my routine no matter what has, has really slowed things down. You want to hear what I can promise you is a very bad idea and that no one is going to want to get on board with, but I've yes, thought about and considered for quite some time. If, I, if you were to tell me, what, what is the putting per, tour average putting percentage from three feet? What do you think it is? Uh, for these guys on tour, three feet... 98%. 99.4% right now yeah. on tour. Yeah. What if from, let's say, 24 inches or 30 inches and in, scoop it. You put a little chalk, <laughs> you put a chalk line, you put a chalk line around every hole that's very faint, and if you get it inside that chalk line, you're good. Next one's good. I love it. I mean, that would speed up play, would it not? <laughs> oh my God, you have no idea how much it would speed up play. And I know it goes against everything golf is supposed to be about, <laughs> but we're talking about 99.4% from inside three feet. We're going to a range that truly you only miss it when you're trying to tap it in and you are lazy at it. Um, right. I'll tell that, you where that would be interesting if you you got, <laughs> I won't say any names, but uh, certain guys who have a reputation for, for fudge in the mark, if... You know, they putted it up there and was inch outside. And when they replaced it, all of a sudden it was inside. How did that happen? Oh, I didn't realize that was good. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, it's 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 a it. I I feel for the rules officials um, yeah. because it's just what do you do? It just it seems like no matter what happens, there, there's going to be like I said, 15 guys in the field who are going to slow it down no matter what. 
Well, I'm going to save some of these questions I still have for uh, for future episodes, but, but you know, a couple more before we let you go here. But what's the most exotic or wildest place golf has taken you? Just somewhere where you looked up and said, wow, I, I never thought I'd be here in my life, and, and here I am. I would say uh, Cape Kidnappers and Cowrie Cliffs oh, in yeah. New Zealand. Um, we, we, they, when they first uh, started, they had this uh, kind of what they call the Young Guns Challenge, and it was just four guys you know, each year in their, I think they were all 25 or less, Man, this piece of property, I always thought there were certain courses I loved and were beautiful, but this piece of property those two courses were on um, were so special, so phenomenal. I, I remember a few times just standing out there going, how did I get here? <laughs> if I remember so, that uh, right, it was, was it Hunter, Camilo, Sean O'Hare, and Anthony Kim? You got it. That, I uh, no, I think the first year it wasn't Camilo. Oh, I think okay. the first year was Adam Scott. Okay. And the second year was Camilo. Yeah, yeah. But uh, that was... Uh, that was a fun, ex- unbelievable experience. I remember that wind. One of the years, the wind just absolutely howling. And the fifteenth <laughs> yeah. hole at Kidnappers is like six hundred and thirty yards, and I think Anthony Kim hit nine iron over the green or something like that. It was, it, yeah, and it was it was funny, good memory on your part. But that that tee shot, you were up on this this cliff bordering the ocean, and it was blowing. This is right before they stopped play, and 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 it was howling into us 40 miles an hour. And I'll never forget Sean O'Hare looked over at Paul Tesori and said, very seriously, do you like the low one here? And <laughs> we all just cracked up, you know, <laughs> like, no, put this one as high as you can into this 40 mile hour wind and let's see what happens to it. But uh, yeah, that was, that was a fun, fun place to be. Awesome. Well, we'll let you out of there on that. Uh, best of luck, you know, with the coming NBC season, we're excited to excited to hear from you more often and we got to, Got to have you back for some more caddy stories in the future. Really greatly appreciate the time, John, and uh, greatly appreciate the insight. Anytime, Solly. I really enjoy your guys' work and uh, keep up the good work, and I'll come back anytime. Appreciate it. Cheers, man. You got it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, yeah. that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect